Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In March and April, when we were really just starting to wrap our minds around this novel coronavirus, when most of us had no idea what it would really mean for our health, our families, our businesses, our anxiety levels. Well, back then, a small group of epidemiologists and infectious disease experts began appearing in the media, and they started to explain the contours of a pandemic. Three years before, Michael Osterholm had written a book called Deadliest Enemy, Our War Against Killer Germs, about the tremendous costs of controlling a pandemic and the even greater costs of not controlling it. He's the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. And he said from the beginning, very publicly, that we wouldn't see a few thousand Americans die or tens of thousands it would be much more than that. He said that testing could not scale up in the way that officials were promising, and he was right on both counts. I first talked to him back in May, and he said then that he saw a need for leaders willing to establish priorities and wrestle with very hard choices. So here we are, mid-July. What does Osterholm see now? Well, I see this virus doing what it does and does very well when the attempts by humans are unsuccessful in trying to slow down its transmission. We do know that you can be quite successful, as has been demonstrated in a number of countries around the world, but we surely are are failing at that effort right now here. Hmm. Is there any upside at all to, I mean, we obviously have seen um, skyrocketing cases over the last few weeks. Does that mean, could it mean well, we would have a less virulent wave in the fall because there's so many people who would have gotten the virus in the last few months. Well, I think the important issue here is to understand just where we are at and what we know and don't know. One of the concerns I have is I think that a lot of people assume we know a lot more about what's happening or what will happen than that we actually have the data to support. For example, when we last talked, we talked about the potential for this uh, coronavirus to act like an influenza pandemic virus where we might have a spring wave now and then uh, see it hit a trough in cases without regard to anything we as humans did, and then to come back with a a large wave of activity sometime in the fall. That's what all the previous influenza pandemics did, regardless of which uh, month of the year that they started in. Three or four months of activity, one to three months of little activity, and then a large second wave. Well, we've written that one off. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt that at this point, there's no trough coming. Wherever we see cases depressed or uh, fewer of them, it's because of human mitigation strategies, distancing, uh, trying to keep people apart, uh, any other activities like that. So the only other than models we have in a sense, and I don't like to use the term models in the traditional sense of statistical analyses, but more scenario-like models, What we're talking about is a coronavirus causing a coronavirus pandemic that we as humans just don't have any understanding of because we've not seen one before, at least surely in modern history. And in this case, we're looking at cases uh, being transmitted in almost either a slow burn, constant uh, kind of coronavirus fire, or one where it actually may be burning quite quickly and in some cases very hot, meaning really hot areas of transmission. And that was all part of a document that we put out several months ago uh, from the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy on what the scenarios might look like. Well, we're now into these uh, coronavirus scenarios where 
I think this thing is just going to continue to burn hot, hot, hot like a forest fire. As long as there's human wood to burn, it's going to find it. It's going to burn it. And the only way we're going to slow that down with the idea of trying to have as few cases as possible before a vaccine might become available is if we do uh, do what other countries did where they drove the case numbers down to less than one to three cases per 100,000 population per day and then use testing and tracing to try to really continue to slow that case number down. Not, not eliminate it, but just slow it down. And I think that's where we're at right now as a country is um, watching what's happened around the rest of the world. Are we willing to do what the rest of the world has done? We let up far too early in our quote-unquote lockdown where case numbers were still increasing, uh, where numbers were far in excess of one to three per 100,000 population, and now we're paying the price for that. I'm convinced that the only way we're really going to get control in many of these states is literally going back into a lockdown kind of phenomena, and this time coming out of it like the other countries did, slowly, in a measured way, trying very hard just to keep those case numbers at a low level without significant damage to the economy or society, and then with the idea that our goal is to get us to a vaccine. So we've seen um, lots of countries in Asia, lots of, lots of countries in Europe open back up, not fully, fully, uh, but to some, you know, people are not in soccer stadiums, but to some degree. Now, a lot of those populations, most most people have not gotten it, so they're vulnerable. But it, it sounds like you think the way they did it, which was like a very strict lockdown and then opening up carefully so that there's not a lot of cases, that's the way to go. I think that's not only the way to go. It's the only uh, evidence we have that we can go forward in a meaningful way to keep society and the economy functioning. I mean, I must say we can take a page right out of what happened here in the United States. I give great credit to the state of New York and particularly the areas of Connecticut and New Jersey around the New York City metropolitan area in the lockdown they did, which was severe in response to a very severe house on fire crisis. And if you look how they've been coming back, gradually, slowly, measured, with lots of data to support uh, the number of people getting infected, who's getting tested, what the hospital bed use is, uh, how many people are in ICUs, what's happening with transportation movement, etc. When you look at all of that, I think they're actually giving us an example for the rest of the country of what can be done um, in such a way as to not in a sense, destroy the economy or society, but at the same time, try to, to bring us back out of this. You know, one of the points I think that's being missed here is that despite all the transmission that we've seen, even in the last three to five weeks, we're probably somewhere between seven and maybe 9% of the population has been infected. That's it. So when you think yeah, about yeah. where we're going, remember that as we've talked about on multiple occasions, this virus won't even slow down its transmission until it gets to 50 to 70% of the population. And then, and only then it slows down transmission, it doesn't stop. So when you think about all the pain, the suffering, the death, and the economic disruption that's occurred for potentially as high as 9% of the population being infected, and we still have to go to 50 to 70% before we're going to see this virus slow down, you understand what we're talking about. Now, we can get there if we can delay enough cases to hopefully uh, uh, the presence of a vaccine that will achieve much of that herd immunity or 50 to 70 percent protection. 
Um, but, you know, there's no guarantee a vaccine is going to come. There's no guarantee that a vaccine is going to be highly effective. And so we've got to reckon with this now. And uh, I, I fear that people think we've basically, most of us have been infected now with all the news of the past couple of weeks, and we're kind of over it. And that, right, is, the, right, right. that is not the case at all. So if you look at places that have been successful, whether it's Germany or it's uh, the New York, New England region, which has been doing better, would you say that their path for the next, gosh, however many months or however many years it takes to get to a vaccine is basically status quo? Like as fires or little fires are up, keep putting them out, maybe intermittent lockdowns like that's what the next few years are going to look like. Well, that surely could be what the next few years look like. Let me uh, just also remind everyone that even in those countries that have done it well to date, they never can let their vigilance down. Look what's just happened in Germany recently, where they, in fact, saw a major increase in cases largely associated with meatpacking plants, just like we saw here in the United States. Right. And then that spread into the community. Right now, Hong Kong has a significant increase in cases occurring, despite the fact that they had, uh, you know, really this well under control. So it's always going to be a kind of titration situation, as I call it, where basically you dial up a little bit, you dial down a little bit. And that's what we're going to find ourselves in. Now, one area that it's a deep, deep discussion, so I'll only just touch on it momentarily. But we also have to acknowledge we don't really understand coronavirus immunology yet. What that means is how does the body protect itself against an infection with this coronavirus? If you've had the disease already, we do know you make certain antibodies or protective parts of of the immune system will kick in to protect you against future infection, but we don't know how long that lasts. If we look at other coronaviruses, it may not be long-term. The same thing would then be true for vaccines. So we also want to be a little bit careful about promising the moon here and saying if we do get a vaccine, it will protect everyone for a long term. Or if you get infected, you'll be protected for a long time. We don't know that yet. Well, I think about the flu shot and nobody just gets one and then doesn't get it for 20 years. You, you have to get it every year. I know that's different, but it's not like it's a, a there's polio, there's flu, there's different kinds of shots you get and they work in different ways. That's right. But the, I think the example you give is a really important one. Because if you look at influenza, the vast majority of the world never has access to an influenza vaccine ever. But seasonal <laughs> flu vaccine programs are largely that of the high income countries. And even then, the number of people that get the vaccine varies dramatically by country. If we had to gear up and vaccinate 8-plus billion people every year, just using that as the example, that would be a challenge that I don't think we could meet. So that this is an important consideration. And while surely the flu vaccine seasonal vaccination model uh, is one that we would look at here, um, it would pose significant challenges if we had to go back and try to vaccinate people on an annual basis. Right, right, right. Let me ask you about, you know, let's say you're sitting, as I am, in Boston, Massachusetts, or you're sitting in Portland, Oregon, or you're sitting in New York City. Are we really talking about, we, we, yeah, I mean, we're obviously all in the same country, but if, from your point of view, as far as the virus is concerned, are we in totally different situations. You've got like your Boston situation and your Houston situation. And though they might technically be in the same country, they are different. It's like all these different little spots. Well, we surely have what I call a series of mini, mini epidemics, M-A-N-Y, M-I-N-I. 
meaning that, I surely don't mean by the M-I-N-I that these are not serious and consequential epidemics, but they're focused on a given area, just as you said, the Houston area or parts of Texas. And then there are many of them that overlap. Some of them are in congregate care, in nursing homes, meatpacking plants, as we discussed, in the restaurants where the young adults are getting together. And so they all combine together to form the pandemic. And we in public health have to address each one of them because each one can then serve as the focus for the next one. For example, we are now beginning to see the spillover of cases in the young adult population, which largely were acquired in social activities, particularly in bars, parties, etc., into older individuals in our communities, their parents, their grandparents, people they work with. And so that then you start to see one fire creates another fire creates another fire. So it is important that we understand in each community what is driving the epidemic in that community and how do we best intercept it. So in some cases, it will be nursing homes. Some cases, it will be bars. Some cases, it might be churches we're beginning to see a problem with. So that's a really important point and one that uh, we need to focus on uh, in a very, very big way. But is there any point in, let's say, Governor Cuomo or Governor Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, is there any point in them trying to deal with their own states as if their states don't border other states? Or, I mean, are, are they doing the right thing and are they are, are they protecting the people in their uh, states, even though, like I said, these aren't countries and we can't shut the borders? I think they are uh, doing the best they can for their residents, and that's an important point. It surely would help if those areas around them or somewhere else in this country where someone might fly to New York or drive to New York would not continue to bring more virus there. So just because you can't stop it everywhere in the country doesn't mean you try to not reduce it in your area. And again, I say reduce it. I'm not at all uh, of the fantasy that somehow we can just stop this, put up some antiviral wall around our county or our city or our state. That's not going to happen. But what we're trying to do again is we're trying to, in a sense, ice skate on the tip of that of that razor. And what we're really attempting to do is basically thread this rope to the needle so that we have the fewest number of cases that still allow society to function not necessarily like it did before the pandemic, but in such a sufficient way that it doesn't destroy society or our economy. It allows us to open schools. It allows more uh, everyday commerce. And at the same time, we don't see the big increase in cases in our hospitals and our intensive care units. That, if we can achieve that, that's the best I hope think we can hope for until we hopefully have a vaccine. But you've been talking about shutting down in some of the hottest places. So it sounds like you're saying if you're in a place where there's not a lot of replication of the virus, where hospitals are in very good shape, you know, not at high capacity. Yes, those places can proceed forward. If you're at a place where hospitals are at very high capacity, huge replication of the virus, they should be on a different track, even though we're all in the same country. Absolutely. That's it. And I would say that even in a country today that appears to have things under control may have to shift back to a more restrictive, comprehensive approach. Uh, You know, the foot on the brake will likely not be constant. It'll be a little harder, it'll be a little softer, and it's all gonna depend on how the cases are occurring in your community. But if we can keep these as small brush fires and not one big forest fire, then, you know, the county fire department can probably put it out. 
if it's going to be a huge, large forest fire, it's going to take national resources, national planning, and efforts to do that. And we're trying to keep them to the small wildfires. Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking to Michael Osterholm. He's the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation and we're going to look at some of the unexpected costs of shutting the economy down, plus how doctors' understanding of COVID-19 is helping more people survive it. From WGBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I've been talking with Michael Osterholm. He's the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. We've been looking at where we are in this pandemic and what we can do to save as many Americans and as many American livelihoods as possible. Now, we know, of course, the costs of allowing the virus to run unchecked in a community. Hospitals struggle to treat people, families have to cope with deaths, and there's economic despair. But the cost of shutdowns, those can also be disturbing. A few weeks back, I spoke with Michael Kinch, who's an expert on vaccines at Washington University, about how many children in states across the country had missed their regular vaccines for things like the measles, the mumps, either because their pediatrician's offices shut down during the pandemic or because their parents delayed taking them to the doctor because they feared catching the coronavirus. And Kinch told me something so shocking, it was hard to believe. You could see as many deaths from vaccine-preventable diseases as you're seeing due to COVID-19. So this is not a trivial effect. So here we are waiting, hoping for a coronavirus vaccine. And in the meantime, thousands of people might die from diseases that we already have vaccines for. It was kind of hard to believe. But Michael Osterholm from the University of Minnesota says, believe it. I worry about that immensely. I have been speaking to that for the best part of the last three or four months. Uh, right here in Minnesota right now, if you look at week 10 to week 25, with the first week being January, for 2019, and you look at week 10 to week 25 for 2020, we are almost 30% fewer number of doses of MMR vaccine that have been administered this year versus last year. Wow. We're the same size cohort. And so basically, I worry that more children will die in Minnesota over the course of the next uh, several years from measles, then we'll die from COVID-19. Yeah. That's just one issue. And measles is so, I mean, we think COVID is contagious. Measles is much more contagious, right? Right. And so the cost of these shutdowns cannot be overstated. They are real. But on the other hand, the alternative is to see what happens like it is right now. Remember, and, and we've talked about this the last time I was on the show, we had something happen in April and early May that this country has not seen in 100 years. And that is a disease going from not even in the top 75 causes of death 
to the number one cause of death by day during that time period when we saw the big mm. flare-ups in New York and Chicago, Atlanta, New Orleans, etc. We are poised to regain that notorious status again uh, as we're seeing the death numbers mm. go up, even though we are much better at providing medical care now. Just the sheer numbers of cases could drive that back up again. That's what we're trying to avoid. But at the same time, we have to understand that there are consequences health-wise, whether it be people who are not accessing emergency rooms for potential heart attacks or strokes, who then die at home, uh, any number of things that, that we have to be able to do both at the same time, is deal with COVID-19 and at the same time deal with these other health issues. And I can tell you it's a lot easier to deal with these other health issues if we have COVID-19 in a much, much more controlled setting. Hmm. But that also seems like messaging and and leadership, maybe on the state level, because I, I rarely hear people talk about, you know, the MMR vaccine. Like, that's not what I mean. You you watch the news. You're on the news. That's not what the news is filled with. You know, what percentage of kids get their are getting their MMR vaccine? And and it's going to matter, like you said, to kids lives and maybe to some seniors and others. Well, you know, you'd be surprised. I actually have mentioned it uh, at least four or five times in the last week on my media uh, attention. It's just trying to keep people focused on the overall consequence of this pandemic and what we need to do to address each of those different challenges. I remember, uh, you know, way back at the beginning of this, I don't know, maybe March or something, I, I would see you on TV and and there would be these projections about, oh, maybe 50,000 Americans will die from this. And, and I remember you saying, well, even if this only kills one half of 1% of Americans, that's still 1.6 million people. I think so, something like that. And you said, I don't understand the projections of like 50,000, that kind of number. Now, obviously, we've left 50,000 behind, unfortunately, a long time ago. Do you still worry about like a million deaths or more in the U.S. by the time uh, COVID-19 is done? I worry about that very much. I think we surely have improved on clinical care, and that has brought down the mortality rate substantially. And I think that's that's a, been a really major plus. I give great credit to our healthcare teams here in the United States and around the world for what they've learned about how to treat COVID patients more effectively. So instead of seeing 60 to 70 percent of patients on mechanical ventilation dying, we're now seeing 20 or 30 percent. Um, having said that, we just have looked at the numbers based on the cases today of over, you know, uh, 130,000 cases with the, you know, 7 to 9 percent of the population having been infected. And without a vaccine coming onto the scene in some time in the near term, we could easily see just now using the very rates, the very current rates of number of people dying, 850 to 950,000 deaths, which is at the low end of what I had said before. And that's based on today's numbers. So yes, we still have a house on fire and these are real people. The, you know, I, I always get uncomfortable talking about things like this in the media because it sounds so abstract. It sounds almost like we're talking about someone's taxes. Right. These are loved ones. These are people's companions. They're there with daughters and sons and mothers and fathers. And think about that. We're talking about 900,000 of them from a virus. Can you just expand a little bit more on doctors doing a better job of treating people who are sick? I wonder where you see that going, because we talk a lot about cases and and deaths, but 
as you say, it does seem like people's experience in the hospital, whether it's because of medication or because of approaches, has gotten markedly better, um, that we are saving markedly more people like, what do you see happening there? I, I wonder if, you know, we never, we don't know if a vaccine is coming. I wonder if the better chance is that a really good therapeutic is coming. Well, I think we will see better therapeutics. I worry a bit now about what's going to happen. I think we are on a collision course with destiny with regard to the current events. And what I mean by that is, is that as much as we accomplished in reducing the number of deaths among patients in our intensive care units over the course of June and July, uh, into early July, I think that's going to get offset soon. And I say it's going to be offset for two reasons. One is we're already running out of even a drug like remdesivir. There are many shortages being reported around the country. There's not going to be adequate supply. And so what was a major potential benefit that we saw for the months of May and June is going to be, into a very real degree, largely absent right now. Uh, Number two is the fact that one of the ways that we have done so much better in intensive care medicine around uh, the country, and for that matter, around the world, is the fact that in treating these patients, instead of dying at seven or eight or nine days into their illness, again, a tragedy, they're living in intensive care units for 21, 25, 28 days. And that's a good thing if you get out and, you know, you get back to one day being who you were before that all happened, which is a whole other discussion about the long-term impact of this disease. But we're now in this collision course with numbers. I have for some time talked about a thing I call the case cliff, where if an intensive care medical unit can handle just 30 patients, what happens when you now have 40 patients? And people say, well, we we can expand. We have more beds. Well, you know what? That's not the limiting factor. The limiting factor today are healthcare workers. And it is a special breed of person who provides intensive care medicine treatment, Uh, whether it's doctors, nurses, respiratory therapy. I can go through the laundry list. These are highly trained individuals. You just can't pull somebody off the street or even that matter, a, a trained nurse from a basic medical ward and put them in there and expect the same kind of care. And so one of the challenges I think we're going to have, and we're already seeing it right now, is the shortage of medical care personnel to help provide this care, which means that the quality of care will go back down again. And I think we're going to see increased mortality over the course of the next several weeks to several months because of the sheer volume of cases and the inability to provide that better care that was provided in the months of May and June. You know, if I could leave one point from this entire show, is that we as a world, and particularly as Americans, need to realize the sacrifice that so many of our healthcare workers are making right now. And we have almost 1,000 healthcare workers who have died as a result of COVID-19 infection. Not all of them occupationally acquired, but many were. And I don't think we have an idea yet of what's happening in those units and the heroic work that's going on that is going to be overrun as we see these large case numbers increase. Yeah. Let's talk for a minute about 
I feel like the topic that everybody is is talking about right now, which is schools, it's getting to the point in the summer where some very big decisions are being made by superintendents and governors and, and other people. And you have these incredibly sort of compelling arguments on both sides, one being obviously you get groups of people together and that's a recipe for disease spreading, and the other being, well, c- kids, you know, have been out of school since March. They're losing, you know, opportunities in their lives. They'll never get back. There's mental health issues. Um, and also, uh, you, how can their parents work if they aren't in school, right? Like you, you can't have an economy that functions if your six-year-old and your eight-year-old and your 10-year-old are all at your house. Um, I, I don't know. How do you, how, if you were a governor or a superintendent, how do you think through this one? I think this is potentially the most difficult of all of the issues that we have before us today with this pandemic. Um, And I say that for several reasons. First of all, I would say that there are three sides to this story. Um, And it's best demonstrated by the survey data we're seeing from a number of school districts where one-third of parents definitely want their kids back in school in a physical building. One-third don't want them anywhere near a school in a physical building. And one-third say, I don't know, please help me. That combination is is potentially very, very difficult to address. Um, And I think that it's, it's also an issue where it has become emotional because some have tried to make it a partisan issue. And, you know, I, I hope if there's anything that we deal with in just an honest, we don't know this, but this is what we must do kind of way, it's this one. It's our kids. And none of us, I'm going to go into this discussion that none of us will ever use our children as political pawns or as economic incentive engines, whatever. We care about our kids. But we're trying to find the right answers. We know, just as you so thoughtfully laid out, all the challenges of not having kids in school. They're huge. And they're health-related. And they're also development-related. And even to the extent of just having an adequate meal once a day. For many children, schools are the place that that happens. It's the place where they're the safest every day. So we have to do everything we can to get them back into school. Now, the question is, can that be done safely for them? And I think that we're going to have, you know, over time, more data suggesting what does safe mean? And then let's discuss it. You know, I deal in the world of epidemiology, which is all about risk. Risk is a two-number event, meaning you have to have a numerator and a denominator. Is it one out of 100, one out of 1,000, one out of a million that get this condition? When you're dealing with kids, it is not a risk issue. It's a numerator issue. One child seriously ill or dies and is related to transmission to school, and it changes everything around. And as a grandfather with five kids that I love dearly, that are on that very uh, discussion point, I think about like that as much as I think as an epidemiologist. So we've got a challenge just in the fact that the emotional nature of this is there. But so as, as we point out, well, how do we approach this then? And I think one of the challenges we're going to have is not just the kids, but we have to really look at, I think, at four different buckets. Kids first. What is best for them, their health, their mental health, their everyday lives? Number two, what is best for teachers? administrators, and staff. 
I mean, if you look at the average age of many of the teachers in this country today, it, you know, well over 60% of teachers are over age 40 years of age. Bus drivers, same way. If you then try to say, well, what, wait a minute, we want to bring the kids in. What are we going to do to protect our teachers, our, our staff, our faculty? And I think that's a huge challenge. And some of them definitely want back in the classroom. They can't wait to get back in the classroom. Some of them are afraid to death to go back into the classroom because of the underlying health problems that they have. And should they get infected then, what would that mean? So that's number two. We have to deal with that. Number three, we have to deal with the families. You know, I think one of the challenges we have today is, you know, please open our eyes enough to understand that the whole country may not be like us. I know of many, many children who attend school who live in multi-generational apartments or family homes where it's grandpa and grandma, it's mom and dad, and it's brothers and sisters are together. How do you protect them when a child comes home with the infection if they pick it up at school? What do you do? So we have to understand we do have legitimate issues with families that also be there. And then finally, the community. As you just said, when a school shut down, that says something about what's going on in that community. And, uh, you know, I don't know how you would successfully open schools and not have chaos at the very least when your whole community's on fire. It just it doesn't seem like it, uh, it's going to play well. Uh, and so to that extent, we have to look at the community itself. So I think all these are simultaneously on the table. And you know what? There is no one answer, and we have to accept that right now. Anybody who tells you they have the right answer on this topic, don't listen to another thing they have to tell you. <laughs> what we have to do is some soul searching. Okay. Well, all right. But at the end of the day, you, after all the soul searching, the superintendent or the governor or something, they still have to make a decision. Um, I mean, in a place like New York, uh, I choose it because the you know transmission rates are relatively low. Do you say, I mean, like New York City, they've said kids are going to go back like two days a week. Do you think that um, it's reasonable to keep kids home half the time um, in that in a place where transmission is relatively low? Because if that's what you do in a place where transmission is relatively low, I would say kids in Florida and Texas are I don't know when they're going to go back to school in a year or two. I mean, uh, it's going to be a while, maybe. Yeah, I think what you've hit upon is exactly what I mean by soul searching is, first of all, be prepared not to have it be normal. Be creative. And by being creative, you will have a combination potentially of in-person learning. You'll have it online. You'll have a mix. We already seen some school districts that are offering both and saying for parents they can choose and, and teachers can choose to participate one or the other based on their sense of risk. Um, we have to understand this is going to cost money. Where are the school districts going to get the money to do the kind of uh, refurbishing, if they have to, of physical spaces to make them safer? This is going to be much, much more expensive. Are we going to provide schools with adequate funding or are we going to say, go do this? Oh, and by the way, if you don't have the money, oh, well, too bad. So far, choice B is what we're going with. And I think a lot of superintendents are probably having to make their decisions with the we don't really have the money, now what do we do situation. Exactly. And I think they have to be obviously responsible that way. And so this is why I talked about the soul searching communities and, and I think business in general. You know, if there was ever a time 
to support our communities. It's now, and it's the school districts, because they, in a sense, are the tip of the spear of this entire pandemic of how we perceive what's happening, what we do and don't do. If a community really wants to get their schools open, they might think about closing bars and restaurants right now, because I think that's a choice. Uh, It's a situation where if we keep seeing substantial transmission in young adults in this country, and that is a very important location for where that transmission occurs, that is going to spill over into the rest of the community. And when it does, that's the house on fire, which is going to make it very difficult to open schools. I want to open schools so badly, but I also understand and appreciate this concern by parents, by teachers, by faculty, by families. And I understand the parents that have to get their kids back because their livelihood depends on it. They don't have a job if they have to be home with their kids. They can't work from home like some of us can. And so these are all the many different factors that come to play. So one, we want to support parents in the kind of education that works for their child, but we do have education. We want to support teachers, faculty, staff, administration, bus drivers, whoever, in a way that allows them to participate actively but doesn't put them at increased risk of having an infection and then being seriously ill. So I think this is the challenge we have of weighing all of this. And I think what I'm counting on is not a lack of direction. What I'm counting on is a elaboration on choice. I think that, that we have to figure out for the next year, we're gonna have to get really creative. A combination of in class, a combination out of class. Education issues in which we support as many people in the way that they can best learn and they can best teach uh, for all of us. Let's pause for our last break here. Um, When we come back, our final few minutes with Michael Osterholm, and we're going to tackle what I think is a very crucial question. um, How good are the coronavirus tests that we're getting? Um, And how should the quality of the tests then impact our behavior? On our website, we're going to have a fascinating piece about schools in Europe and Asia, which have mostly managed the virus well, And they're now facing pressure to get back to normal. So more kids in each class and more time spent in school. What are places like Finland and South Korea and France going to do when it comes to going back to school full time? We're going to have the article for you at innovationhub.org. From WGBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Back in a minute. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I've been talking with Michael Osterholm about the state of coronavirus in the U.S. and why different parts of the country are starting to follow very different courses. We've talked about the often uncalculated costs of shutting down and what the best model is for moving forward. And in our final few moments here, I want to focus in on really the basic science that underlies everything we think we know about this pandemic, uh, and that's testing. So you've got diagnostic tests, which we mostly talk about. There are also antibody tests, which we sometimes talk about. And I want to dig a bit into that foundation that people premise their discussions on. Is our testing good? Uh, How much do we assume science to be there? And maybe we don't even understand what it is we're talking about. Well, I think you summed it up quite well. (laughs) I don't think in many cases we do understand what we're talking about. 
Uh, our group again put out a, a document uh, more than a month and a half ago on smart testing. The idea of you want the right person tested with the right test at the right time for the right result so that you can have a right outcome. And we're missing on that completely in this country. In many, many locations, it's just about the number of tests. It's test, test, test mantra. We need to be very smart and tactical about who we test and why. And part of it is we don't have a choice because we are now testing using a manufacturing system for developing the tests, the reagents, the chemicals that we use to do the tests, the swabs, all these things that was never, ever prepared to suddenly be providing all of these tests overnight. Millions and millions of tests. And you can say, well, you know, it's like uh, if I order on Amazon, I just go on the computer, I push a button, and the next day it's here. We just make the assumption that everything else is going to be like that. Right. And I can tell you right now, we are running out of all the reagents. We're running, you know, we're running test equipment into the ground that was never meant to run 24-7. And it's catching up with us at the same time that the big increase in testing needs is there. It is there. So um, one is the science of testing is still uh, a challenge. Uh, the FDA uh, surely has its uh, hands full because they allowed some very bad test to get on the market because of the need to just meet demand. Uh, this is very true both for the virus detection test, but as well as the antibody testing. The antibody testing is really the wild, wild west right now. So I, I agree with you that uh, testing is a huge challenge. Most people don't understand it. And um, this is one of the areas that we really need national leadership, both in terms of procuring and securing um, the kind of reagents, the test equipment we need, as well as how do we educate the public and the medical care system what kind of testing should be done. So we're running out of the stuff that you need to do these tests. How reliable do you think the tests are? I think when they're done, um, as prescribed, they're quite reliable if they're the virus detection test. And I'm talking that about the PCR. Now, another test that's basically a type of antigen detection test, or basically is a quick, this 15 or 20 minute test that we see, that has had a history of being unreliable in terms of picking up people who are really infected. Um, and, and I worry about that test being used because if somebody hears, well, I'm not positive, I'm okay, they then go about their lives as if I don't have to worry, when in fact, anywhere from you know 10 to 30% of the time, they might really be infected, and we missed it. So that's, a, that's not a good test to apply. Are those tests being given? They unfortunately are. And we, and we, and, and we speak, and, and the caveat with this test is that if it's negative, you still need to go get the other PCR test, which most people won't do. Oh my gosh. So that's a challenge. If you look at the antibody test, that to me is the wild, wild west. There, as you, you know, we don't understand for sure what being antibody positive really means. Are you protected or not? But in a population where this test is applied, think of this not as a light switch, on or off, just like the virus detection test is either it's on or it's off, the light's on or off. This is a rheostat where basically it's lighter and darker. And some people will say, well, this is what light is. And some will say, no, it's down here. So for us to try to capture as many true positives, meaning that we want to get the signal and say they're positive, we start taking more and more false positives. People really don't have antibody, but their test result comes back that way. And today in the United States, using the best tests we have, about half of all the positive tests that come back are going to be false positive, meaning I'm telling somebody they're positive. 
Oh, my gosh. That doesn't seem close. That doesn't seem close to accurate at all. I agree with you 100%. And we have been very vocal and very loud. In this document that we produced at, at our center, we make all that very clear and say, why are we testing? Well, I see more and more medical labs and, and clinical labs offering this to businesses today. And I think this is a lot of snake oil. I mean, for lack of a better term, it's wrong mm -hmm. because we don't have a population that's educated in a way that they understand. If I do come back with a positive, what does it mean? Well, first I'll tell you, I'm not, even if you're really positive, I'm not sure if you're protected. And number two, oh, and by the way, half the time, the positive may not really be a positive at all. And I worry that, for example, we are already hearing about in healthcare settings where people want to use this to screen healthcare workers to say, oh, you're positive. We don't need to worry as much about you for protecting you from the virus. That would be so wrong to do because they may not really be protected. And, and so this one is still a big challenge. And the FDA, I think, has still got a lot of work to do to not allow these tests to be used out there in the way they're being used and without the understanding of the limitations of the testing. So I know modeling is impossible. I think you've said like there are bad models and there are worse models or something like that. Um, no, I, I've said all models are wrong and occasionally some give you useful information. There you go. Okay. Um, so just going with that and, and understanding that to be true, four months from now is Thanksgiving. Um, if you had to say, you know, what the world looks like, what America looks like at Thanksgiving, what do you think? I don't know. And I don't know because I'm not sure what humans will do. I'm, I'm more sure what the virus will do than I am humans. If uh -huh. we, if we right. make choices to shut down transmission, really limit it, for a period of time, then it'll allow us to bring society back out in a slow rollout, much like New York is doing. I think we've got a chance at Thanksgiving of having a much better Thanksgiving than we could if we had one today. On the other hand, if we don't, I think our Thanksgiving could be much worse than we're seeing today. And it's in our hands to make that choice. It's ours. And I don't know how as a society we're going to deal with that. And when I say that, let me just say there's the science hat that I wear that you know can get into all the numbers and the reasons. But for no other better way to measure this, I think about my five grandkids and I think about my two adult kids and their wonderful spouses and I say, oh my God, I hope we make the right decision as a society. You know, you, you had said to me months ago that you hadn't seen your five grandchildren um, have you seen them now? I actually have. And this well, is part good. of the good news, I think, of what's happening. Our group is actually working right now on a major initiative with 22 of the world's experts in the area of aerobiology, the study of infectious agents in, in air, uh, industrial hygiene, infection control, animal models using uh, SARS-CoV-2, etc., to actually determine what is the infectious dose for the SARS-CoV-2 virus. You know, people have this mistaken idea, it's like tag. You know, I walk by somebody, tag, you're it. Um, it's not. Right, right. And it's a t function of amount of virus that's in the air that you're breathing and the amount of time that you're breathing it and what kind of protection you have. And what we're trying to do is understand that so we can give people guidance as to, you know, am I at risk if I go to the grocery store for 10 minutes under what conditions would I put me at risk? 
also outdoor versus indoor air. You know, I, I think, you know, people kind of thought I was a wingnut. Well, they probably still do. But, you know, during the week of the protests, I kept getting asked by the media, oh, my house is going to expand this outbreak. It's going to blow up now. It's going to be really a problem. And I said, you know, I don't know. Because we have had a history where in outdoor air, the virus dissipates much more quickly. Sunlight in particular can be very effective in activating it. And uh, we don't know what's going to happen here. So we might see increases, we might not. And of course, as you know, generally speaking, we saw very little increased virus activity due to the outdoor protests. So outdoor air clearly can be very effective. So when you asked about my five kids or my five grandchildren, I did see them for Father's Day, one of the best days of my life. Oh, great. I, I, I cried more tears than I can tell you. And I hugged every one of them, and I gave them a kiss, and then I backed away, and I was with them for less than a minute in the close contact setting. And I believe from our work that that was a safe move. And so what we need to do is understand that, and, and, and we got to keep coming back to that. As you and I talked about before, I absolutely hate the term social distancing. Please don't use it. Physical distancing must never social distance. More now than ever, (laughs) never social distance. Dr. Michael Osterholm is director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. It is always, always great to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's great to talk to you. I appreciate uh, your perspective. And this is a journey we've been on and we're all on it together. And um, it's, 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 uh, it's going to be an important one for all of history. Thank you. And we've got lots more for you about COVID at our website and on our podcast. You can check out recent episodes on schools, on how national cultures shape our responses, on the race for a vaccine, and on the intersection of COVID and obesity. You can find those conversations either at our website, which is innovationhub.org, or you can grab our podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. We also had production help from Teresa Lawler. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.